0: Chapter 16, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 20 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of, or actually they're not at the end of the rows anymore, they're under the rows, and this morning's passage in those Bibles is on page 822. Again, that's Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "'Who do people say that the Son of Man is?' And they said, "'Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets.'" He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. God, that the the changing of the weather is a reminder that we are not in control of our lives. God, unexpected ice on windshields and on streets is a reminder that things don't go according to our plan, but they go according to your plan. God, we thank you that your plan for salvation is more gracious than ours would have been. God, that even though your creation, us, rebelled against you and rejected your rule over us, You sent us a Redeemer in Christ. God, and that when Christ came, He took disciples and instructed them and taught them and and gave them a mission. And we have His words written down in Your Word so that we can learn from them. And so God, we ask this morning that You would just send Your Spirit to empower us to understand Your Word and empower us to apply Your Word to our lives so that... They're transformed from how they were before. We thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to turn these lights on so I can actually read. And can you turn me down just a little bit, Jordan? All right, so... If you were here two weeks ago, we, we covered kind of the first half of this passage. We, we covered verses 13 through 17. And when we, when we read the whole passage two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the main point of this passage, the whole passage, is that Jesus is the Christ and that that knowledge comes with responsibility. The main point of the passage is that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one that was promised in the Old Testament, and knowing that, having that knowledge places a responsibility on us to do something with that knowledge, to respond to who he is, to respond to what he's done, and to share that message with other people. That's what we talked about last time. We covered those those first part of the passage. And today, we're going to cover the last section of the passage. We're going to cover verses 18 through 20. So of that that main point, that Jesus is the Christ and that that knowledge comes with responsibility. The, The first part of the passage, two weeks ago, we kind of focused on the first half of that statement, that Jesus is the Christ and what that means and who he is. Today, we're going to focus more on the kind of second half of that statement, what the responsibility is that we bear as believers because we have that knowledge. So, we're in verses 18 through 20, and that's where we're going to begin with verses 18 and 19, and, you know, before we get into this passage, I kind of want to preface all of it by saying that these verses, 18 and 19, are are some of the most controversial verses in the entire New Testament. It doesn't really look that way, you know, if you just read it, it may not seem like they're, they're, they spark a big controversy, but they do, and, I gotta tell you, I'm not really excited about teaching this passage. There was a time in my life uh, when I was a seminary student that I loved these passages. And if you know any Bible majors, you probably understand that. Controversy's fun, right? We can, we can debate, we can argue with one another, we can prove why someone else isn't as smart as we are. But when it comes to, to preaching a passage like this, I would rather spend more time on on learning what this passage has to say about how I should live instead of how to navigate the controversy. And so, you know, it's probably weird for a pastor to say he's not excited about preaching a text, but hey, that's where I'm at this morning. And so... We're going to talk about about this controversy. We're going to talk about what these, these phrases in this verse, these verses mean. But I think that more important than that, what, what we need to do this morning is we need to get past all that, that those arguments and all those debates and all that controversy and find out how these verses actually apply to our lives. Because it's really easy just to kind of get sucked into things like that and forget about the fact that this text actually bears weight on how we live. And so we want to do both this morning. We want to focus on kind of how to navigate the debates, but also and how the text should impact our life. And so we're going to go through this. In some ways, it's going to be a little longer than normal, uh, possibly. And so I would ask you just to bear with me this morning, because you know on other weeks I'm shorter. And so we're going to start with verses 18 and 19. 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, first question. Why is there controversy surrounding these verses? There's controversy because one uh, sect of Christianity has kind of taken these verses and used them to to teach a whole lot of things. That that group would be the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has, has founded... three major beliefs on this passage. The first major belief is that Peter, the guy that Jesus is talking to in this passage, was the first bishop of Rome. We probably know the bishop of Rome by another name, the pope. Roman Catholics historically believe that Peter was the first pope, and they, they, they kind of tie that back to this text. The second belief they've based upon this is that Peter and all those who, who come after him, all the other popes, all the other people who are his successors, have infallible communication from God when it comes to these, these matters of binding and loosing that we're going to talk about later. So, they think that the guy who's, who's pope now, when it comes to these issues of binding and loosing that we're going to talk about later, that they cannot be wrong. They're right all the time. They're infallible. The third major belief is that Bishops, like Peter and those after him and priests, those who hold the offices of the Catholic Church have these kind of special spiritual gifts that that other believers don't have. Only those who serve in those offices. So it would be like if if we believed at BC, which we don't, that only pastors have the spiritual gift of teaching or only pastors have the spiritual gift of discernment and only deacons have the spiritual gift of, of service. We don't believe that. We think all Christians can have any spiritual gift. It's not tied to a specific office. And so these verses have kind of sparked this controversy because if you've read any theology books or you've read any commentaries, when one group comes out with an interpretation of a passage, not too long after that another group comes out with an interpretation that says that group's wrong. Right? If if Dr. Morgan and Dr. Bergen were to to team up and come out with a book that says They believe that Christians should celebrate the Lord's Supper every single day of the week. Within probably a year or two, other biblical scholars, as equally qualified as them, would come out with a book and say, no, you're only supposed to take the Lord's Supper once a quarter. And this is why. These These are the verses that defend this. Whenever someone puts forward a view, someone always comes out and argues against it. And so, the Catholic Church has kind of come up with these interpretations of this passage, and then through the Reformation, people came up with arguments against it. And so... These verses have led to controversy, and the first question that we need to ask in order to to answer what these verses mean is in verse 18, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So the first item of debate is is who is the rock? Who is the rock, or, or what is the rock? And there are really just three options here. The first one is that Peter is the rock. The second one is that what Peter says, Peter's, Peter's confession, where he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock that the church is built upon. The third one is that Jesus is the rock. Those are the three options. So let's talk about each of these. The first one, Peter is the rock. People think this for, for two main reasons. The first reason is that Jesus kind of has a little word play in this passage doesn't really come out in English, but if you look at the footnote that you probably have in your Bible, it tells you the Greek words for Peter and rock sound similar. Peter's name in Greek was Petros. The word for rock, like a rock in Greek, is Petra, so they're, they're very similar words. So Jesus is almost making a pun here on Peter's name. And so most people say, well, clearly, you know, he, he's, he's making this word play. So he's making a connection between Peter's name and the word rock. And Peter's name even means rock in Aramaic. And so most people say, well, clearly he's talking about Peter because he, he says this, this phrase. The other reason why people say that Peter is the rock is because Peter's the most obvious answer in the text. If, if you're reading this passage, if, you, if you've never been exposed to any of the controversy before, if, if you just look at it and take it at face value, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's, it's the closest thing in the verse. It's the most, in some ways, the most logical answer is that it's Peter. So the question would be, if he makes that word play, if it's the closest thing in the passage, then, then why do people say Peter's not the rock? Well, I think that most people say Peter's not the rock is because the Roman Catholic Church has said Peter is the rock. And they don't want to agree with that. They don't don't want to take their view, and so they they come up with another answer. This leads us to the next one. What Peter says is the rock. So his confession of Jesus as the Messiah, his confession that Jesus is the Son of God, then becomes the rock or or the foundation or the, the basis of what Jesus is going to build the church on. The problem with this is that Jesus could have said a whole lot of other things to make this a lot more clear. He could have said, and on this statement, on this truth, on these words, on what you've said, on your answer, on your confession, on your profession, he could have said an entire list of things that would have been a whole lot more clear for us as we're trying to identify who the rock is. But he didn't say that. He made that word play between Peter's name and rock. And so that kind of makes it confusing if what he's talking about is what Peter's said. The main argument for this view that that Peter's confession is the rock is that it argues against the Catholic position. It's an answer that that we can give, that protects us from all their interpretive mistakes, and then we don't have to worry about about them arguing what they argue because we've got something else that is equally good. The third option, and this one is my favorite, but I don't agree with it. The third one is that Jesus is the rock. It's my favorite because I picture Jesus saying it as he's like flexing his abs and pointing at his body. On this rock, I'll build my church. There are arguments in favor for this position. The first one, as I said with the last one, is that it argues against the Catholic position. The second argument is that it seems biblical. It seems biblical because you're saying that Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the rock on which he's going to build his church. So that that just sounds right. In fact, if we go to 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says the rock was Christ. It's there. It's in the Bible. The rock was Christ. That's what Paul says. So if the rock's Christ in 1 Corinthians 10, then probably the rock is Christ in Matthew 16.18, right? I don't think so. This is why. Because if that's the case, then Jesus' metaphor is just destroyed. Because how can he be the one who builds the church on the rock if the rock is him? He's building on himself. That's a very confusing metaphor. And also, if you read the New Testament much, you'll find out that the authors mix metaphors all the time. So in Matthew, we've seen leaven used to represent the false teaching of the Pharisees and used to represent the kingdom of heaven. Two very different things. In 1 Corinthians uh, three, Paul says that Jesus is the foundation of the church. in Ephesians two, Paul says that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Here in Matthew sixteen, Jesus is the builder of the church. In First Corinthians three, Paul calls himself the builder of the church. in John nine: five Jesus is the light of the world. In Matthew five, the disciples are the light of the world. They, they use metaphors in a whole lot of different ways, and these, these aren't contradictions. Don't hear me saying that scripture is contradicting itself. These are figures of speech. And as we know, figures of speech are used in a whole lot of different ways in a whole lot of different places. I don't think because Paul identifies Jesus as the rock in 1 Corinthians means that Jesus is the rock here. So at this point I would assume most of you have figured out what I think is the answer. I think Peter is the rock. I think Peter is the rock because it's the most obvious answer from the passage. If we were to read it without knowing anything else behind it, that's what we would think. But just because I think Peter is the rock doesn't mean that I think that the Catholics are right. Obviously, I'm not a priest. I don't have a collar on. I have a wife. I have kids. (laughs) Clearly, I don't agree with their theology. That's why I'm here and not somewhere else. I think Peter is the rock, but I don't think that means that he was the first bishop of Rome. I don't think that means that all Catholic bishops and priests have these kind of super spiritual powers that other Christians don't have. I don't agree with them, but I think that their interpretation of the text is right. It's their application that's wrong. I think that the way we should see it here is that it's not that Peter is special. It's that he's a representative. Look look at what's happening in this passage. Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What's interesting is that he doesn't ask everyone else. He doesn't turn to Matthew and say, Well, who do you say that I am? He doesn't turn to John and say, Well, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, and then Jesus stops asking. That's probably because all the other disciples agreed. They either nodded or, or said the same thing or did something to let Jesus know that they all thought the same. Peter is representing the rest of the disciples. And so when Peter is the rock, he's not this this unique rock that no one else is. He's representing all those who would make the same confession that he makes, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter is the rock, but he's not the rock in the way that some people have understood him to be. And what's crazy about, about all this controversy, just like we've spent... I don't know, probably five minutes talking about Peter, is that both, both Catholic scholars and Protestant scholars have missed what's significant about this passage. If you look at verse uh, 17, verse 18, sorry, Peter's not doing anything. We spend all this time talking about Peter, but Peter's not doing anything in this verse. He's being identified. Jesus says, you are Peter. And Peter just stands there and goes, you're right. That's all he's doing. What's important, what's significant in this passage is what Jesus does. What Jesus says that he's going to do. That's what we should spend all our time focusing on. We shouldn't focus on this this controversy that just is going to divide us and confuse us. And we're going to spend more time talking about this guy who just has his name said. What's important is what Jesus does. He says, I will build my church. I will build my church. There's this book, uh, and I referred to it in two weeks ago, but it's, it's by, by this guy named Don Whitney. It's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And in this book, he, he talks about, about meditating on God's word as, as a discipline that all believers should have. And what he says is that he says that, that most people, most Christians, don't spend enough time reading the Bible. And I think he's right. And then he follows that up by saying that even those who do spend enough time reading the Bible, most of those don't spend enough time understanding the Bible. So you've got this, this, this group of people who, who should be reading God's word. Most of them don't read it enough. And of those who, who do read it enough, most of them don't understand it enough. And he says that the reason why we don't understand what we read is because we don't spend time meditating on it. We don't spend time thinking about what he says. And, and in this, this, this chapter on, on meditation, he gives this really helpful tool. And I think it's helpful for us to understand this verse. He says that, that as you're going through a verse, that, that maybe you have a hard time understanding or a verse that you want to think more about, to read it out loud. And as you read it out loud, emphasize a different word each time to try to think more about about what that specific part of the verse means. So, like in in this this passage, on this verse, I will build my church. I think it's helpful for us to spend time thinking about the the I Spend time thinking about the, the will build and spend time thinking about the my church. As we seek to understand it by, by thinking about kind of the components of what Jesus says, we'll really understand more of what it is that he's, he's doing and what the significance is of the fact that Jesus says, I will build my church. So this, this first part, I. Clearly, you know, since we have the, the red letters in our text, we know that the I here is Jesus. He's speaking to Peter. He's he's telling him that he's the one that's going to build his church. This I, we know, because Peter has just identified him for us, is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the fact that Jesus says this tells us two things about, about what he's saying. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the fact that Jesus is God, tells us two things about his statement, about what's about to come out of his mouth. The first thing is that it tells us it's true. The second thing it tells us is that it's certain. It's true because we know that since Jesus is God, God can't lie. What God says comes to pass. What God says happens. Back in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light and there's light. God says, let there be plants and there's plants. God says, let there be a a duck-billed platypus and it exists. And no one knows why. What God says comes to pass. What God says is true, and it happens numbers uh, twenty nine er, numbers twenty three nineteen says this, and I think there we go God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it, or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it at the beginning of paul 's letters to Titus, he writes this: Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake. Of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. There are a whole lot of other passages we go to. But the point is that Scripture says that God doesn't lie, Scripture says that God can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church, we know that what he's saying is true. We also know that what he's saying is certain. It's going to happen. It's going to come to pass because as we've just said, God can't lie. And Jesus is God, so Jesus can't lie. But we also know that this is going to come to pass by looking back and by looking forward. If we, if we look back on church history, even though church history definitely has its, its dark spots, it definitely has its, its places where uh, the Christian church did some, some really bad bad and some really sinful things but if we if we look back we can see that god was still building his church his his providential hand was on it just just think about how it all began right jesus picks 12 guys four of those guys are fishermen one of those guys is a tax collector one of those guys is a is a revolutionary who fights against the government one of those guys betrayed him and the rest of the guys we don't know anything about other than their names. He picks these 12 guys and he gives them a message and he says, go tell everyone in the whole world. Let's say right now, I pick 12 people and say, go tell everyone not to drink the water in Hannibal because it's polluted. Now, even though the Hannibal Board of Public Works has already sent out letters saying that, I think it would still take a lot of time to get that message out to everyone in our city, to everyone in our state, to everyone in the world. It would take forever. It would fail. That's not a plan that's going to succeed. If, if I do that, if I come up with that on my own and, and put that out there, it's going to fail. But that's Jesus' plan. That's how it starts. And, and without divine intervention, without God working in the lives of the apostles, without God working in the lives of the early church, without God working in the lives of Christians throughout history, there's no way his plan for building his church will work. And so as we look back and see the fact that there's a whole room full of people here in America who are, who are celebrating the fact that Jesus has died for us on a day when it's snowy outside, we can look back and know that God has built his church He's building his church. We also know this by looking forward. If we were to, we read in Revelation seven nine through twelve this. This is John's vision of the future. He says, "After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number." So John, in his vision of the future that God gives him in Revelation, he, he sees this, this big group of people before the throne, and in that group of people, he says, he sees people from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, and all languages, standing before the throne and worshiping God. Clearly, what he sees there is the result of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. He sees people from all nations who are, who are disciples of Jesus. God gives him this vision of the future and he gives him this vision of the fact that the the great commission will be accomplished. The church will be built. And so by by looking back and by looking forward, we can know that that Jesus' statement here that he will build his church is both true and it's certain. And that should give us confidence. That should give us hope. That should excite us that we are part of a mission that we know is going to succeed. We're, we're, We're not responsible for building the church. He says he'll do it. The next part of the statement, he says, I will build my church. We're going to go forward and talk about the church part, and then we'll come back and talk about the building part. What is Jesus talking about here when he says the word church? In the New Testament, the word church is really used two different ways. It's used to talk about what we could call the local church. The local church is, is a community of believers, a community of, of followers of Jesus, a community of disciples in a specific place, like a specific geographic location. So you have the church at Philippi and the church at Rome and the church of Corinth. These are, these are local churches gathered together to, to, to share Christ with, with where they're at. Scripture also uses the word church to talk about what we could call the universal church. The universal church is the community of believers uh, of of everyone who is trusted in Christ at all places and all times. So the universal church is made up of everyone who's ever trusted in Christ. So so Paul is a member of the universal church. If you're here today and you're a a true believer in Jesus, you're a member of the universal church. People at Calvary are, people at Prince Avenue are, people uh, that are in the Catholic church who are truly Christians are members of this universal church. It's made up of all true believers in all places at all times. So when Jesus here is talking about his church, I think that it's pretty clear that he's talking about the universal church. He's not talking about one specific location. So even if a church calls itself Jesus' church or Christ's church, that's that's not the church that Jesus is going to build, right? This isn't a promise that he'll build believers' church. It's not a promise that he'll build Calvary. It's not a promise that he'll build my church back home. It's a promise that he'll build his church, the universal church. I think, though, at the same time, we can have hope that he'll build our church, our our local church, as long as we are striving to represent his church. As long as, as long as we are focused on doing the things that he says a church should do, as long as we are pursuing the things that he says the church should pursue, as long as we're seeking to fulfill the mission that he gave his church, I think we can have hope that he will build ours. Because ours represents his. He will build his church. But the question is, how? How is he going to do it? How is he going going to build... His church in in our city? How is he going to build his church in our nation? How is he going to build his church in our world? I think the the short answer is read the book of Acts and find out. That's what he does, right? The book of Acts is about him building his church. But there's there's another answer. This is my answer, and I think we have this on a slide. Jesus builds his church by supernaturally empowering his followers to share his message and carry out his mission, resulting in supernatural transformation in the lives of others. That's how I think he builds his church. He supernaturally empowers his followers to share his message and carry out his mission, resulting in supernatural transformation in the lives of others. That's based on a whole lot of passages, and we don't have time to talk about them all today you don't like that if you have questions about that i would love to talk to you about it but that's my answer and i think the key words in this phrase are supernaturally and supernatural even though it's the same word the point is is that it's something that only he can do he says he's going to build his church i'm not going to build it you're not going to build it we're not going to build it he will build his church and I think that what that should cause us to recognize is that if it's something that he has to do, if, if we want him to do it in a way that it will succeed, because if, if we just work really hard, if we just do a lot of ministry on our own and, and, and strive with all our human effort, we'll fail. Our, our, our plan isn't guaranteed to succeed. His plan is. Our building isn't guaranteed to succeed. His building is. And so if he's going to build his church in a supernatural way, which is how I believe that he'll do it. In the book of Acts, there's all these phrases where it says, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They didn't do it. They didn't bring the people in. They didn't add to their numbers. The Lord did. He supernaturally transforms people's lives. And so the clear implication for us, I think, is that if if Jesus is the one who's going to build Jesus's church, then that should mean two things for us the first thing that should mean is that we will pray more. I think if we were to honestly ask ourselves, and this goes for me too, when, when was the last time I asked Jesus to build his church? And I'm not meaning those specific words. When was the last time I intently took time out of my day to pray that he would bring lost people in to change their lives through his church? When was the last time that I prayed that God would save the people that live on either side of me? When was the last time I prayed that God would save the people that I work with? When was the last time I prayed that God would, would save the people I see at the grocery store? I think if we asked ourselves that, those questions and, and looked for specific answers, not, that was a while ago, not, well, I, you know, I, I, I generally pray for lost people, God, save my neighbors. God, save the people I know who don't know you. I think the answer to those questions would convict us because the reality is no matter how much we're doing it, it's not enough. And I think if if you know me well, you know that I'm not trying to guilt you into doing this because that's just changing one sin for another sin. The point is, is that because we know who Jesus is, because we know what he's done, because we know what he's said in this passage, it should cause us to desire to do this. It should cause us to to break for the people who live around us who don't know Christ. It should cause us to, to break for the people who are outside the church. And that brokenness should produce in us a realization that the only way that their lives are going to be transformed is if he does it. The only way they're going to be added to the church is if he does it. And it would cause us to ask him to do it. The second thing, so that's the first thing, we pray. The second thing is that we walk by faith and obedience, recognizing that he has said he will build his church. Now, this isn't like a field of dreams type thing. It's not an if-then. If we do it, they will come. It's not a if we pray, if we walk in faith and obedience and Jesus is going to build his church. He doesn't work that way. So why do I say we should walk in faith and obedience? Because he's already told us to do it. In the Great Commission, he's already told us to, to share his message. He's already told us to carry out his mission. He's already told us to do what we're supposed to do. And so walking in faith and obedience, it doesn't earn anything for us. It's a response to what he's told us to do. It's not a guarantee that he's going to build his church, but it's a guarantee that we'll be obeying the person that we call Lord. And Luke, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Right now, uh, we're going to do something that I hope to do more often together as a church. We're going to do some immediate application of the sermon. And then we'll come back and finish the passage. And so with, with the people that are next to you, I would like for you to take a couple minutes and pray what we've just talked about. Pray that he would be building his church. Pray that he would give you boldness. Pray that he would equip you to walk in faith and obedience to what he's called you to do. And then then I'll close us in prayer in a couple minutes, and then we'll we'll come back and finish. The passage. Does, does that make sense to everyone? It's maybe new, it may be uncomfortable, but uh, I think uncomfortable is good for us. So just take a couple moments, pray with, with someone close to you, uh, and you can pray out loud, you know, even though we're in church and you're supposed to be quiet. confidence in that because Jesus says it and that we can have confidence that his words are true and his words will happen. God, we pray that that your spirit within us, God, would move us to seek you more on behalf of those around us. That would seek you more on behalf of of you building your church in in our city and in our nation and in our world. God, that we would make it a priority to pray for that. That we would make it a priority to to pray for specific specific people. God, that, that we wouldn't use excuses or laziness or busyness as a reason not to pray. God, that you would help us to walk by faith and to walk in obedience, that we would do what you've told us to do. God, that we would go out by the power of your Spirit and, and to share your message and to carry out your mission that you gave your church. God, help us to be faithful and help us to trust that you are faithful to to, to deliver on your promise. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So he finishes up verse 18 with the phrase, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you look down at a footnote, it says the gates of Hades. It's kind of a synonymous phrase. And what it, what it represented in the, in the ancient world was, was a figure of speech for death. The gates of Hades represented death. It'd be like if I said someone bought the farm. Most of you would not think that I mean someone went out and purchased some land with a barn on it and some cows. I would mean somebody died. It's a figure of speech that we all know, that we're all familiar with, that represents death. This is what the gates of Hades would have been for Matthew's readers. This is what the gates of Hades would have been for Jesus' listeners. And so what he's saying is that death will not overtake the church. It will not die. It will not perish. It will succeed. He's just reiterating what we should already know because Jesus is the one who's saying it. He's saying he will build his church. It's not going to die. It's going to succeed. That's verse 18. Got two more, and I promise these will be quicker than the first one. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Remember, Jesus here is still talking to Peter, but the rest of the disciples are there, and Peter's simply representing them. In order to to get what this verse means, we need to answer three questions. The first is, what are the keys of the kingdom? The second is what's this this binding and loosing stuff he's talking about? And the third is does this just apply to Peter or does it apply to the disciples or, or all disciples? So the first question, what are the keys of the kingdom? Well, if I give you the keys to my house, what does that mean? It means you can get in my house, right? It means that you have access to all of my stuff. Jesus saying Peter is given the keys of the kingdom means that Peter can get into the kingdom. Not because of who he is, but because of what he said, because he has confessed Jesus as the Christ, because he recognizes that he's the son of the living God. Jesus gives him the keys of the kingdom and that's what gets him into the kingdom. Those are what the keys of the kingdom are. Peter has access to the kingdom because of his faith in Christ. And as we know from last, or from two weeks ago, what Jesus says to Peter is that it's not revealed to him by flesh and blood. It's not something that he can take credit for. It was revealed to him by the Father. Because the Father has given Peter faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus gives Peter access to the kingdom. Then he says, And whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In heaven. What does that mean? <laughs> binding, loosing, keys of the kingdom. So, this, the, the, these phrases here about binding and loosing, they're, they're a metaphor, another metaphor. Jesus's got like 30 of them in this passage that, that unpack what he said about the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom give Peter entrance and other people entrance into the kingdom. And the binding and loosing is kind of unpacking how that works. And what they mean, the binding and loosing is is binding people from entrance into the kingdom or loosing them for entrance into the kingdom. So if you bind someone, they can't get in. If you loose them, they can get in. And what this means is that Peter, because of his profession, because of what he said about Jesus, Peter has the authority to permit or deny entrance into the kingdom. Peter, because of his profession of faith, has authority to permit people to enter the kingdom or to deny them entrance into the kingdom. Now, before you freak out, let me unpack that. Let me qualify it. Peter has the authority to permit or deny entrance into the kingdom. That sounds like Peter has a whole lot of power. But what it means is this. And and if you have an ESV, look at the footnote If you have a New American Standard or a Holman Christian, you don't have to because the translators uh, got it right. The footnote in the ESV says this, or, another way to translate it, shall have been bound or shall have been loosed. The Holman Christian Standard says it this way, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. What they're drawing out is that these statements represent something that's already happened in the past that has present realities. And so when Peter binds something, what he's doing is he's just doing something that's already been done in heaven. When he looses something, he's just loosing something that's already been loosed in heaven. It's already happened from God's perspective because he's the one who, who reveals these things, remember? It's not revealed by flesh and blood, but by my, by my father in heaven. And so Peter has this authority but really, if, if, if it's, it's helpful, I think, if we think of it more as like a password, right? Instead of a key. Passwords and keys kind of do the same things. But God makes the key. He makes the password. And Peter just enforces it, right? The, the key has already been made. It's you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's that confession that gets entrance into the kingdom. And Peter just stands at the door and makes sure that people know what it is. He checks the password, he checks the key and if if people have it, he lets them in. He has the authority to permit or deny entrance into the kingdom, but he 's not the one with the real authority he 's more the one who 's enforcing what God has already set in place. The next question: does this apply just to Peter or does it apply to all the disciples? And follow-up, does it apply to us? As I said about the rock, I think Peter is representing the rest of the disciples. I think this is evident in verse 20, where he says he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was a Christ. He didn't just charge Peter. He charged all of them. I think this authority is given to all the disciples. And through that, I think this authority is given to all disciples, All believers. The question then is how do we apply this? If this is what this means, if we as followers of Jesus, if people who have confessed that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, if we have the authority to permit or deny entrance into the kingdom, if we have the keys of the kingdom, what do we do with them? I think there's, there's two different ways this works. The first way is in informal settings. The second way is in formal settings. And and we'll come back to this phrase in Matthew 18 when Jesus talks about the church. He's going to say the exact same thing in the context of church discipline. And so in in informal settings, just just believers relating to one another, it means that it's our responsibility as believers. It's our responsibilities as, as disciples of Jesus who have been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom to make sure that other people are making the same confession that Peter made. It's our responsibility as as believers to make sure that people are making that same confession. They're not believing in another Jesus. They're not following another Jesus. They're not trusting in another gospel. And what this means is that we should, you know, in air quotes, approve the professions of faith of others. When someone that we know who's not a Christian confesses Jesus... We should say, that's awesome. You are a believer. You're a Christian. When, when we say those things, we're essentially almost putting a stamp of approval on their belief. It's not our stamp that matters. It's the word stamp. We're, we're enforcing what God has already put in place. I think that what that should mean is that we as Christians should be aware of giving false hope to people. When we're with people that we have strong reasons to suspect that they're not a believer and they talk about being a Christian, we should be very careful about affirming that in them. If they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, we need to make sure that we're not giving them reasons to think that they do. Now, this doesn't mean that, that we all become kind of like the false profession police and we follow people around and we say, hey, they're not a Christian, they're not a Christian, they're not a Christian, and this is why. That's not our job. We, we cannot know for certain whether someone else is a believer or not. Only God does that. Remember, they're made by, by not by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. He's the one who reveals that truth, and he's the only one who knows whether or not it's really there. But at the same time, we, as believers, encourage faith in others, and we question false faith when we believe that we have reason to. I think in formal settings, so like the church... This functions in a lot different way. For us at BC, we're a church that believes that only Christians can be members. I know that sounds extremely obvious, but it's not for for, for a lot of churches. And so the way this works, the way we as, as elders exercise the keys of the kingdom is that when someone says, I want to be a member of your church, we say, that's great. You have to go to a new members class You've got to read our statement of faith and our covenant and sign it and you have to meet with the elders. And in that interview, we ask people what the gospel is. We ask them how they've trusted in the gospel. We ask them things that we believe give us a good picture of whether that person is really a believer or not. And to be honest, as I was studying through this passage, I realized that there's a question that we need to start asking that we haven't currently asked. And that question is, When was the last time you shared your faith? Because Peter is is applauded not just for believing who Jesus is, but for sharing that with other people. He says it out loud. He talks about it. He makes the profession. And so we use the keys of the kingdom as a church as we verify whether or not people are believers. And, and that's not just the elders. All the members do that too. When someone wants to join our church, after they go through that whole process, we let everyone know, hey, you know, Raylene wants to join our church. Is there any reasons why we should be worried about that? And we put that out there. And if you as a member have a reason, you come and you tell us. If you don't have any reason, that's you giving your approval to what we've said. Hey, we believe that Raylene is really a believer, and that's why we're letting her join our church. And right now, she's really embarrassed. But she is a member, and we did let her join our church because we do believe that she's a believer. We also practice the keys as a church in, in, in the sad case of church discipline, which we'll get to in Matthew 18 if someone is living their life in a way which, which clearly argues against the fact that they are really a believer, we as a church will say, hey, we let you join. We thought you were a believer, but because of how you're living now, we don't think that anymore. And so you've got to go. That's a huge issue and not part of the sermon. We'll talk about it in a few chapters. Those are the keys of the kingdom. Those are how we bind and loose. I I believe that it applies to all believers. It definitely applies in different ways to formal settings like the church, like with elders, but it does apply to all of us as disciples who are represented by Peter in this passage. Verse 20, then Jesus says, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Why? (laughs) Right? If, if, if he really is the Messiah, if he's been this, this person who's been sent by God to redeem the world and his disciples have finally woken up and understood who he is, why does he say, don't tell anyone? He says that because of where they are. At this point in Matthew, if he just, the disciples go crazy and start telling everyone, what's going to happen is that the crucifixion, instead of occurring at the back of Matthew, is going to occur right here because that's how the Jews respond once it happens. He tells them to keep secret because his hour has not yet come. He's not finished with everything that he was sent to do. And so he tells them to be secret. This verse obviously does not apply to us, right? Don't read this verse and say, all right, I'm off the hook this week. This passage said, I don't have to tell anyone. It said not to tell anyone. The Great Commission comes after this and Jesus says, tell everyone. It's the opposite of this. I think the word strictly is probably there too or it should be because that's what we need. The disciples didn't need that kind of encouragement. They needed encouragement not to tell. He had to strictly charge them not to tell anyone. We need him to strictly charge us to tell people. We shouldn't need that kind of motivation, but we do. Before we move on to the Lord's Supper even though, you know, this has been a longer sermon than normal, I realize that a lot of this stuff is confusing, difficult. Does anybody have any questions? We don't normally do that, but since this is a different kind of passage and we've already done one thing different today, let's, let's add in another. Does anybody have any questions about this passage, about what it means? And if you're somebody who is of a more less outgoing nature and you would like to ask me afterwards, that works too. Okay. Evidently, I was perfectly clear, <laughs> readily understood. Nobody disagrees. All right. The Lord's Supper. This is a place where we as a church exercise the authority of the keys. Right? If, if, I don't, here we go, here's a bulletin. On our bulletins, if you've ever read them, they say this. Believer's Church invites everyone who is trusted in Christ alone for salvation to participate with us as we take the Lord's Supper together. This is a time where we as a body confess and renounce sin and meditate on the many things that Christ has done for us. Take individual time in prayer and then go forward to the table in the back to take the Lord's Supper when you, and when you're ready, return to your seat. That part where it says, Believer's Church invites everyone who is trusted in Christ alone for salvation to take the Lord's Supper. What we're saying is that if you haven't trusted in Christ alone for salvation, don't take the Lord's Supper. This is a place where we say, if you're not a Christian, you should not do this. It's not because we want to be exclusive. It's not because we want to be mean or rude. It's because of this. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30 Paul says this, "...whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord." Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Paul, in that passage, talks about all these, these, these crazy things the Corinthians were doing at the Lord's Supper. They were, they were getting drunk. They were like eating a full meal. They were excluding people. They were making... Uh, you know, just, just doing all kinds of stuff that, that shouldn't be done at the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, because you've done things this way, this is why these things are happening to your people. This is why some of you have gotten sick. This is why some of you have died. The Corinthians weren't guarding the Lord's Supper. They weren't fulfilling their role as a church in protecting what it represents. And because of that, Paul condemns them. He, he, he rebukes them. He tells them not to do it that way. And so we as a church say, if you're not a believer, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. It's not because we don't like you. We want you to be a believer. We want you to take the Lord's Supper. But we want you to do it in the right way. And so today, as we celebrate this together, we celebrate it knowing that that we do it corporately as a body, as a a group of people who celebrate the fact that Christ has died for us. And today, as you you take time to, to meditate on the word, I would encourage you to even though, you know, we, we've already done it, you know, even though you, you can already check the box and say you've applied today's sermon by praying for the lost people that you know. Ask God to, to keep convicting you about that. Ask God to keep challenging you to, to, to spend more time praying that he will build his church, to spend more time praying that he will empower you and and, and give you courage to go out and walk in faith and obedience to what he's told us to do. I'll pray and then I believe some, some music will play and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though your word can be controversial, even though it can be debated, even though it can be confusing and, and hard to understand at times, that who Jesus is is clear. God, that he is the Christ. He is your son. And your entire word is painted with the story of his redemption of us. And that we know the beginning and we know the end. We know that the mission that he has tasked us with will be accomplished. We know that the people now who live in some remote part of the world that speak a language that no one yet knows that they will have a representative before your throne. How we pray that you would help us to trust in your faithfulness and to model it in our own lives that we seek to be faithful to do what you've called us to do. We thank you that you will build your church. We thank you that you have given us entrance into your kingdom because of the faith that you have given us in Christ. We pray that now your spirit would move in us, convict us and challenge us and help us to apply your word to our lives for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.